as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hi, it's Annika Flynn. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Speak Up Conversation. We are so lucky to have so many incredibly inspiring people in the speech pathology profession. Today I get to chat to someone that fits this description and more. Yvette Heiter is a Professor of Speech, Language and Hearing Sciences at Western Michigan University and a Fellow of the American Speech and Hearing Association. She has multiple research interests, including social pragmatic communication and the effects of maltreatment and prenatal alcohol exposure on communication skills. Today, though, we are chatting about Yvette's work in the area of culturally responsive and globally sustainable practices for speech pathologists. Welcome to the Speak Up podcast, Yvette. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. We're so, so thrilled to have you. To start, I'm so curious to hear about you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Well, um, I've been a speech language hearing sciences. I've been in speech language hearing sciences for about 37 years. 26 of those years were in academe or higher education. I was an itinerant speech-language hearing services professional a few years after my master's degree, and that was my first exposure to transdisciplinary um, intervention or to working in a transdisciplinary team, although it wasn't called transdisciplinary at the time. And I worked with preschool children who were diagnosed with, and I'm using air quotes, severe emotional disturbances of um, and that was the term that was used at the time in the 80s. But um, we know now that those children likely had experiences with trauma, you know, trauma experiences and, and trauma experiences that happen in the caregiving system, which is called complex trauma. And that is the experience of maltreatment that happens in the caregiving system and all of the long term effects that goes along with it. Um, I also at that time worked with adolescents who were in, living in residential centers um, with the same, with a similar diagnosis um, and who more than likely had trauma, a trauma history. So uh, later I moved from Florida. I grew up in Michigan, but I moved in the United States and I moved to Florida to work at my first professional job, and I moved from there back to Michigan, and I was working at a hospital system when that's when it became keenly aware to me of systemic racism happening in that hospital system, and then it also helped me reflect on my previous experiences in the school system, and I could recognize that it was, you know, that that was, systemic racism was also occurring in that particular setting. 
I became so frustrated with the um, with what was happening at that hospital um, because the, I was fighting all the time trying to get African American children and Latina and Latino children uh, intervention, and um, it was very frustrating and difficult. Um, I was about to leave speech language hearing sciences altogether. And I went to what was supposed to be my last American Speech Language Hearing Association conference, a convention. And um, I just happened to go to a Multicultural Concerns Consortium meeting. And there was this man named Dr. Dunn who was encouraging people of color to go back to school to get their doctorate degrees in order to support research and, you know, bring interest and and to be able to have the field better serve um, individuals who are people of color or indigenous or uh, marginalized in other ways. And so that that really changed my life. I went to back to school. Um, I enrolled at Temple University in Philadelphia in the United States. I worked with Dr. Aquiles Iglesias and um, and from that point on, my sole purpose in the field was to change or to, to be to help the field transform um, into a discipline that would treat um, the, the language and the communication skills of people of color, indigenous people and people who are marginalized in other ways um, as, as, tip, as, as a standard, not as an afterthought, you know. When I was going through school, it was a lot of, oh, and the last chapter in the book is, oh, and by the way, you know, we had, um, you have to think about this is African-American English, but it wasn't presented like part of the canon, right? It was kind of like an afterthought. Well, thank you to Dr. Dunn for right. turning, yeah, turning your um, career around and, and keeping you in our profession. What an amazing person. I know, you know, I looked for him for a long time after. I just, I've never seen him after. I've never been able to make that connection. Um, I don't even know. Oh, just one of those people that comes into our <laughs> so, life and changes right. it forever. <laughs> it was like, a, like an angel. And where is your work taking you from there? Because I know you've had lots of other amazing things that you're involved with also. Right. Well, my, my specialization really focuses on the impact of culture and trauma histories on language and communication, in particular social pragmatic communication. And I work with primarily two populations, children, African-American English speakers. African-American English is a language variation spoken in the United States by African-Americans, but not only by African-Americans, but largely and then also um, with children who have uh, trauma history, so children who have experiences of maltreatment. And I have been um, teaching courses. I was working at Wichita State for a little bit, um, but I've been the longest, of course, was at Western Michigan University, and I just retired. Um, well, actually, it was in August that I, 2020 that I retired with a little push from COVID, um, but but uh, so that's those are like my areas of special specialty. And oh, and one more thing I think is important to say 
is that I have had the privilege of being able to work in Senegal, West Africa for a number of years. And um, I've fostered very, not just me, but my, the team that I work with, we've fostered very collegial and familial even relationships there. And so this is the second year that we have not gone since 2002 due to COVID. So that's a big change. But um, the first time we had uh, that we traveled, the first time that I traveled to Senegal was with the Council on International Educational Exchange. And they um, and as a result of that visit, we made contacts and interactions with several scholars there and educators and people who work for NGOs, non-governmental agencies or organizations. And we were invited to collaborate with um, educators there in exploring the ways that globalization affect systems. So language system, communication system, um, economic, political system. And so as a very transdisciplinary team, um, process. We have worked with people in Senegal. And then in about 2012, we started a study abroad um, program there. And um, so... And that's for speech pathologists, is it? Yeah. Well, it was a study abroad program. So there was speech language pathology, education, and then also um, political science. And so it was a range of disciplines that were working together and in different ways once we were in the city in the country but we were focused on the concerns that were raised by our by the colleagues in Senegal and educators that we partnered with and so the students were learning how to do research these were undergraduate students and they all did a um a project but the the questions that were being asked were the questions that were generated from our colleagues um, in Senegal, and then also um, they were the students took language lessons that uh, in Wolof, which was one of the is the lingua franca there. Although there's several languages that are spoken there, and um, so the they were taking language lessons primarily to focus on key terms, so that they can understand the values of the that organize the society there. We also volunteered at a couple of schools. Um, the school that I went to with students was called the Verbal Tunnel School. And so this was a school for children who are deaf and hard of hearing, learning um, to speak and to use um, verbal communication. And uh, the teachers, we did a lot of observing to learn about what the um like what their educational process was, how they taught the children, what kinds of things were expected in the curriculum. And um, sometimes the teachers would ask for resources or one time um, they asked um, us to help them figure out how to teach the children uh, WH questions in French because French was the, is the language of education in Senegal. And um, so we... Did, the students and I did a research. We re, uh, summarized the literature in that area, provided some points for them, but also taught a mini lesson, which all of the teachers came to 
in a classroom using some cute speech. And But the beautiful part of it was is that when we came back a couple of days later, the teachers had taken that lesson, extended it, changed it completely to match the needs of the children, and had adopted it and was making it um, something that was very useful. And I think that that's just really a good example of sustainability because we were no longer necessary for that, you know. We were doing something that they had asked us to do. They were able to then take it and make it their own and employ it in a way that um, made sense to the children. Um, and that became part of uh, what they were, how they were teaching the children WH questions. What a wonderful story. And I guess that's ideally what you're hoping to achieve, isn't it? That you build up capacities to a point where you're not needed. <laughs> so that's just, exactly. yeah, that's just wonderful. Yeah. We are so thrilled that you're joining us as a keynote speaker at our upcoming national conference. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the key messages you believe speech pathologists need to hear when we're thinking about culturally responsive practices. Sure. Um, I have lots of key messages, but but considering our, the time that we have, I'll just I'll focus on just a couple, maybe three. So um, um, one key message is that culturally responsive practices are not it's, it's not a one shot deal, right? It is something that's like should be lifelong. It's very dynamic, and that's one of the reasons why my co-author and I. Um, Marlene Tellis Provence and I, um, in our book, Culturally Responsive Practices for Speech Language Hearing Sciences, shifted from cultural, cultural competence to culturally responsive because inherently in responsiveness is this um, dynamic nature that regardless of what the context is, you have to be responsive, meaning that, you know, every context is different. You have to be prepared and think about that particular context differently than you did another. So you're never, it's not just a place to check off and to um, be, you know, just feel like, okay, I've, I've, I've learned that, I've got it, right? It's not thinking like that anyway, like that either. Um, it's this constant need to be responsive and in a, in a, in, um, to respond to uh, people and groups in different contexts in different ways. So that's one message is that is that this culturally responsiveness is dynamic and it's constantly changing, requires us as, you know, professionals and scholars and educators, clinicians to constantly question our own practices and make sure that they are, are appropriate um, or responsive to a particular context or group of people. My second key message would be that um, that uh, we there there really needs to be a transformation in the field in terms of how we become more culturally responsive and globally sustainable, and um, you know part of that transformation are is that we need to reconceptualize how we're practicing. Um, there was a special issue of the International, International Journal of Speech-Language Pathology that came out several years ago, but I think it was 2013, if I'm not mistaken. But it 
there were several articles in there. It was in response to the World Health um, Organization and um, World Report on Disability. Um, but there were a few articles in there, several articles in that particular journal that called for this need to have this transformative, we need to reconceptualize the way we're, we're you know, providing practices. And in order for change to happen, you know, we do need to have this transformative mindset. Um, and one way that that happens um, is that, well, you know, systems can't be transformed if we're doing the same thing the same way over and over again, right? And um, there are some, some issues that are in the field that are being addressed in the same way now as they were, you know, trying to be addressed when I was in school, which was, you know, I just retired, so that was quite a long time ago, right? <laughs> and um, so, um, you know, so, so I think our practices, just in general, need to be disrupted, need to be transformed into something that works better and is more equitable for um, all individuals and all groups and all communities, and that's kind of... Gee, how do we achieve that? That's that's huge. Is it is it about um, where we're educating our new speeches? Is it about challenging us old speeches that have been in the field for a long time? How it's how do we do that? It's both, I think. Right? Yeah. And so I think you know, in terms of curriculum, in terms of what's being taught, um, that you know, even that I was having a conversation with. A couple of colleagues, um, one who has recently passed, Dr. Kenyatta Rivers and Dr. Glenda Dejanet, and we have worked together for long periods of time on African American English pragmatics. And during one of our meetings or discussions, you know, it's kind of like a aha moment. We were saying, and this was relatively recently, that for all of our classes, we need to stop. Um, we need to incorporate language variation in language development classes and language disorder classes, not just talk about, you know, which would be in the United States, um, what we're calling like white American English, not just talking about that, but incorporating so much more about what's typical from lots of different groups, right, into curriculum. So that's one, I mean, that's a very small thing that can happen. But it's a practical, it's a really practical suggestion, though, because you're so right. I, I recall my time at uni, and absolutely, it was just the mainstream Australian English that we're thinking about any developmental norms around. Right, and we need to, and I think, and I think what's happening is that there are some, you know, younger, up-and-coming um professors who are challenging the curriculum. So that's one place, you know, where we can have transformation. But then at another place, it's looking at our professional organizations and the policies or the standards, you know, how are they kind of strapping us in to keep things the same? Are they helping us transform? Or do we need to look at those types of policies that come out of this, you know, as a as a discipline, we need to um, change as the context and as our histories histories change. And then, so that would be my second point. My third 
um, key message, and that will be the last key message for here. Otherwise, I'll just give my talk. <laughs> but um, the is that we need to identify frameworks that help us get there, right? We need to identify uh, conceptual frameworks that help us employ more culturally responsive and globally sustainable practices or teach or engage in more culturally responsive research or, you know, to, you know, change the curriculum in ways that are more equitable for everyone. And what's happening, um, I know a lot, is that there's not a lot of writing or teaching about different conceptual or theoretical frameworks that will guide us in in that way. All right, there's there's very few of us um, in the field that are writing about it. So we need conceptual frameworks that help guide us in this work of uh, culturally responsive practices and globally sustainable practices. And um, there's not a lot of writing right now of speech language hearing sciences scholars who are writing about diverse conceptual frameworks, right? We, we know a lot about language development, language acquisition theories, but not as much about social theories. And um, so some of the people who are writing about that are Merchant Pillay, who's from South Africa, but I think he's now living in New Zealand. And there's um, Harsha Cathard, who is living in South Africa, and B. Staley, who, um, you know, who is um, part of Speech Pathology Australia and myself, and there are probably a few others. Um, but it's just not very widely used right now. I um, approach speech-language hearing sciences from a critical perspective, from critical theory, which a, f a framework of critical theory, which is comprised of different theories, such as Marxism or cultural Marxism, like Gramsci, or um, black Marxism like Cedric Robinson, radical black feminism like Angela Davis, critical race theory, um, queer theory. Um, and so there, there actually in 2021, there are a couple of younger upcoming uh, scholars who are writing now about from the perspective of critical race theory. And so that's promising. Mm, absolutely. Now, COVID-19 has changed so many things about everyone's life. Let's be honest. As you said, it's gave you a tiny little push into retirement and, it, you know, everyone's life has changed in some way from the pandemic that we've been living through. What impact do you think it's had, though, on the way clinicians engage in global speech pathology practice? Well, I think, you know, in some ways it's much more difficult to connect, yet in other ways, it's almost easier with the technology. Uh, the technology, as we learned earlier, just a few minutes ago, sometimes fails us, right? Doesn't hold up its end of the bargain, um, uh, you know. And uh, there, but I also think there's we have to re just rethink a lot of things that we are doing. There's such restrictions on travel, um, and for those of us who are engaged with um, colleagues and scholars outside of the countries where we live, it, that makes it, you know, sort of difficult to continue in that, in that way. I do um, worry about what 
those connections look like for people who are living in majority world countries. But on the other hand, there's increased opportunities for telepractice. So it's just, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to, hard to determine, you know, because there's both positive and negative. But one thing I think is very clear in a lot of countries, um, certainly in the United States, is that COVID-19 laid bare those long-standing inequalities and inequities in the systems that we have. And so I think one, you know, thing that we should be thinking about as speech language sharing scientists and professionals and scholars and and clinicians is how do we, you know, identify the 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 gaps that happened in our that 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 were wide open in our field and then how do we identify those and then rectify them so that um, there is more equity across um, uh, people who are able to engage in those services or activities. Um, you know, in the United States, there is telepractice and speech language pathologists are working on uh, through telepractice, but not everyone has access to the technology. Not everyone has access to the the mach- you know the machinery or the connections or um, and if they do, there might be one you know laptop for a whole family. So, and some families also don't have capacity in terms of time management and just managing their family dynamic to connect with that type of therapy either because of perhaps the chaos that they're living in. So you're right, it, it, there are pros to telehealth, but there are also people that um, for a ver- variety of reasons can't engage with that platform of delivery also. Right, exactly, yeah. Well, let's hope that all of the positives do come out of COVID-19 and when these international borders are finally open, everyone is just itching to get overseas and and share our profession in Senegal or or any other country that I know there are some amazing, well, there was some amazing work happening and hopefully we can get back to that um, sooner rather than later. But, you know, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Pandemics are unpredictable. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me all the way from the US today, Yvette. We truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're truly inspiring and um, we're so thrilled to have you as part of our upcoming conference. I know that I will be very happy and excited to be tuning into your keynote address. And thank you to everyone for tuning in and supporting our podcast. We will be back with another conversation next Wednesday. Thanks, Yvette. Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.